Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, everyone. And welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 71, Iconoclasm. In 726, eight years after the siege had ended, the volcano lying beneath the island of Thera erupted. This was the same place which had rained fiery hail down on the retreating Arab fleet, and known today as Santorini. The explosion sent lava and ash spewing high into the sky, and debris fell all across the Aegean, as far afield as the coasts of Europe and Anatolia. Everyone in the vicinity was talking about it. A spectacular natural disaster like this always prompts discussion of what it might mean. The first conclusion that many in the Roman world jumped to was that it was a manifestation of God's anger. The Emperor Leo agreed with his people. He was already on a quest to appease God's anger, and his search had focused on finding the particular sins which the Roman people were committing that might have lost them their Lord's favour. The eruption at Thera convinced him to act against idolatry. Leo sent soldiers out of the palace and down to the great Chalk Gate which guarded the entrance to the imperial precinct. Their orders were to remove a large icon of Jesus Christ, which adorned the gate. Their work must have taken some time, as a crowd began to gather menacingly, appalled at the removal of this sacred item. Once their numbers swelled, a fight broke out, which eventually led to soldiers and civilians being killed. Undeterred by this popular resentment, the emperor would press on with his policy to remove icons from the empire to stop his people's idolatrous ways and make them all once again pleasing to God. That is the story that comes down to us from Theophanes, one of our key historians of this period. The whole narrative may be entirely fabricated, save for the eruption at Thera. And that, in a nutshell, is why iconoclasm, the popular name for the religious dispute about to begin in Byzantium, is such a complicated issue. Why might Theophanes make up a story like that? Because our noble historian was on one side of a dispute which sought to define the identity of Roman life and belief. Theophanes was on the winning side. He was on the side of the lovers of icons, the iconophiles. His history deliberately portrays the icon breakers or iconoclasts, as the enemies 
of Orthodox Christianity. And his history therefore survived and was copied. The writings of those on the other side were literally burnt or edited to remove any trace of iconoclast success. Almost nothing survives written by the icon breakers, and so modern historians are left with a giant, intriguing puzzle as they pick through the lies and the half-truths, trying to glimpse what might actually have happened. In terms of our podcast narrative, this could lead me to have to stop every other sentence and say, but this might not have happened, we don't know, because etc, etc. So I thought it was better to give you an overview of iconoclasm today, in one sitting, rather than let it grind the narrative to a halt every time Leo is accused of doing something, which he probably didn't do. Okay, let's take a step back. What is an icon? In Byzantium, this meant a sacred painting. It could be a mosaic or a fresco or a small wooden panel depicting a Christian religious image. Church decoration had grown more elaborate as more and more churches were built. Slowly over time, the images became a common sight with biblical narratives on the walls or the ceilings or even the doorways. And then local saints, martyrs and churchmen would be honoured in similar fashion. And of course, members of the imperial family might be portrayed on the walls, as we saw famously with Justinian and Theodora in Ravenna. The smaller, movable paintings had an even greater proliferation. They now littered the churches and chapels of the empire, They were a frequent sight in funeral processions and in tombs, and were a fixture in many private homes. The image of Jesus, Mary, or a saint would sit in a special spot in the house with a lamp beside it or incense ready to burn. Some had jewels encrusted in their frames, others had cases or veils placed on them to protect their precious surfaces. The use of images as part of the Christian faith had always been a difficult subject for some. Although Jesus himself showed no particular concern for images, the Old Testament was pretty clear on the subject. I'm sure you're all familiar with the second of the Ten Commandments. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. This instruction had drawn a fairly clear distinction between the growing Christian community during the early Roman Empire and their pagan neighbours. Statues of gods, goddesses and other divine beings littered the streets, libraries and gymnasiums of the ancient world. And more significantly, Good Romans had a household deity whose shrine occupied a special place in the home for private veneration. It's only natural from a cultural point of view that as the empire converted, its art transferred from pagan to Christian forms. There were always some amongst the clergy who could see a contradiction in this. God had forbidden the worship of idols, 
and so the followers of Christ should not have anything resembling that. But the majority felt differently. The images of Jesus and the saints were not being worshipped in the same way that pagans had once sacrificed to Apollo. They were merely decoration, and in fact were a helpful guide to the illiterate. Those who had trouble grasping or remembering biblical stories would now have their attention focused by this new art. This compromise might seem harmless enough, but over time many of these icons had come to assume a greater significance. In the past I've discussed the cult of relics which had a powerful place in Byzantium. Objects and clothes associated with the disciples began to be collected and housed in churches. The true cross, once discovered, was understood to allow direct access to some of God's power. You'll remember the emotional ups and downs of its loss and recovery during Heraclius' wars. And, of course, during our two sieges of Constantinople, the icon of the Virgin Mary, the Uthihitria, was widely believed to have provided divine protection to the capital. That icon was said to have been painted by St. Luke himself, but across the empire paintings of all kinds were being endowed with supernatural powers. They were said to ward off evil and perform miracles. Some were seen to bleed or cry. Scrapings from these paintings were taken to heal the sick. Their popularity grew throughout the 6th and 7th centuries so that any local saint or martyr would have a shrine or special church dedicated to them complete with icons that could be reproduced and sold or gifted to the faithful. It's no surprise that their popularity seems to have grown from the reign of Justinian onwards. As Romania was repeatedly invaded, the citizens of the empire began to seek divine protection rather than rely on the increasingly uncertain aid of the imperial army and church. It's a story I hope to get to at some point, but beleaguered Thessalonica is a perfect example of this an imperial city alone in a sea of Slavic peoples which had been repeatedly assaulted by them and the Avars. Rarely did an army from Constantinople come to their aid, and so they turned to St. Demetrius, who duly responded in a series of famous miracle stories. Citizens forced to hide in the hills of Anatolia when the Arabs or Persians were raiding turned to their local monasteries and relied on its holy men or the sacred relics they guarded for advice and for healing. Even the Emperor Heraclius fixed icons of the Virgin to his ships as he set off on the long trek to Tessaphon. Everywhere, it seemed, people were looking for a personal assurance of divine support. This desperation was being faced by everyone across the 7th century and, of course, became acute during the siege of the capital in 717. The very empire itself was facing extinction, and although Maslama did retreat, that didn't mean anything had been solved. God didn't allow the Arabs to march up to the gates of the Christian capital for no reason. It was a warning. It was a warning to repent 
and change your ways. The question was, what sin was being committed? What were the Romans doing that had lost them God's favour? Remember that this was a logical question for people to ask. They had no copy of the decline and fall to hand. Rome had been everything. It had been life. Now it wasn't. Now the Arabs were here and they were repeatedly beating them, killing their friends and taking their possessions. It was a traumatic century for the Roman people and it was now dawning on them that this was a permanent state of affairs. Leo had been the Stratigos of the Anatolikon. He had lived amongst the ordinary people of the empire for years and knew their concerns. Now that he was emperor, he was in a position to do something about it, and if he could discover what was angering God, then he had to act. So why did icons, at this stage, become the focus of the debate? Again, it has to do with the psychology of defeat. Roman Christians had been criticised before for their idol worship by the Jews, who lived within the empire. Much ink was spent by authors defending Christian practice and arguing that Judaism was obsolete. The clinching argument for many was that the Jews had no kingdom, their temple was in ruins, and the Christians now ruled the empire. God had settled the debate in emphatic style. Of course, the problem now was that the Christians were losing. God, it would seem, agreed with the Muslims about how best he should be worshipped. The Arabs were strict monotheists who particularly disliked the idea that Jesus was placed on the same level as God and that his cross was venerated in public. In their eyes, that was commandments one and two broken right there. The Romans had never had to deal with attacks on both their power and their truths at the same time. Even during the dark days of Heraclius's wars, no one had contemplated the wisdom of Zoroaster. But now there was a serious question to answer. The Romans weren't concerned about Islam being the new truth, they did, however, worry that their jealous and angry God, the one the Old Testament spoke about, was unhappy with them. And naturally, the noise coming from the caliphate was going to have an impact. In Syria, for example, the Christians loyal to the Orthodox faith were still writing about why the Jews and Muslims were wrong, and as the 7th century wore on, their treatises were increasingly filled with defensive explanations for the use of icons and religious images in Christian worship. Clearly, the taunts of the enemies of Christ were hitting a nerve, a nerve that some had for centuries been warning about. God was not happy with the veneration which belonged to him being given to small wooden panels covered in paint. That, of course, simplifies the debate considerably, but hopefully conveys the issues which sparked this crisis. The problem we face, of course, is that we don't know what happened next because of our source problems. I don't normally do this, but let's just establish an outline of our narrative over the next century. The debate about icons surfaces within the Empire... And as far as we know, Leo supports the thrust of the anti-icon argument. It's Leo's son, Constantine, 
who will take these ideas more seriously and begin to actually enact it as imperial policy, including the destruction of icons and other art and the persecution of those who defend it. Crucial to all this is that Constantine is a militarily successful emperor. During the siege, I foreshadowed the fall of the Umayyad regime. Yet another bitter civil war is coming to the caliphate, and once it kicks off, it will leave Leo's son in a position to appear like a conquering hero. We know that those victories were contingent upon the fall of the Damascus caliphs, but to the Byzantines, still coming to terms with their inferiority complex, it legitimized their emperor. His policies seem to have won back some of God's favor, and so they became more widely accepted. It's the military success of the government in Constantinople which drives the whole story of iconoclasm. In 787, so 70 years from where we are now, a new regime will come into power in the capital who will make it official policy to restore the icons. Not only that, but to enshrine them as part of Orthodox Christianity and destroy the arguments made by Leo's son. This new iconophile policy will last for about 30 years. During that time, a certain Nicephorus will become patriarch and begin work on his history, while his contemporary Theophanes will also have high standing at court. However, military disasters will undermine the new regime. The empire will cry out for the military success they enjoyed under Constantine, and iconoclasm will return. Both Nicephorus and Theophanes will be exiled by the new emperor, further cementing their iconophile sentiments. However, the new icon breakers will do no better as the caliphate resumes its devastating attacks on Byzantium. In 843, the iconophiles will take back the throne and finally expunge iconoclasm from the empire. Don't worry, you don't need to remember all of that, but you needed to hear it now to understand two vital things. The first is that for the next 123 years, our sources are specifically biased, almost nothing remains from a pro-iconoclast point of view, and the second is that the fate of this religious and cultural debate was determined by success on the battlefield. The majority of Roman citizens now live in Anatolia, and they had to come to terms with a permanent threat to their well-being. That sense of fear led to a crisis of identity, and the best argument that either side had was not intellectual, but military. Arab defeat signaled God's support for the sitting regime. I'm always looking for ways to see the similarity between people of the past and how we behave today. I know we've already discussed the logic behind this seemingly superstitious ideology, but obviously most of us today don't judge religious truth by military success. Perhaps a better analogy would be to look at our own preoccupation with economic growth. That seems to be the major concern for Western countries today. Delivering jobs and wealth for your people definitely seems to confer legitimacy on a government, even as we all know that the global economy 
operates with little regard for the policies of individual states, at least most of the time. I think one could draw an analogy to the Byzantine situation if we imagine that, say, China becomes ever more wealthy and Europe and America grow poorer. If that trend went on and on for a century and the Chinese regime operated much as it does today, what would be the effect on our politics? Would we hear Western commentators start to agitate against democracy and workers' rights? We ought to create a system like the Chinese have in order to become wealthy like them. It's not a perfect analogy, obviously, but I think some of us might struggle to relate to the Byzantine sense of inferiority in the face of Arab success. But as you can see, people inside the empire were beginning to question their identity and ask what could be changed and what could not about Roman Christian behaviour. Having simplified iconoclasm, let's complicate it a bit. Dozens and dozens of books have been written about this period, in part because we know so little about it. Theories fly back and forth on many issues, but one central feature of the analysis stands out. This was not just about icons. Leo came to power on the back of six other emperors in the last two decades, and then the siege. His priorities were to get the state functioning again and shore up the legitimacy of his new dynasty. His son would feel very much the same way. They wanted more money for the government, more loyalty from the bishops and soldiers at their command, and more obedience from their subjects. They wanted everyone pulling together if they were going to protect the empire from the Arabs and stay in power themselves. Defeat had undermined the propaganda of the state. The Roman government claimed on its coins and in its law books that God granted them victory and that's why they ruled. People could see through those claims and trusted local sources of authority and spiritual power more than Constantinople. An attack on icons, then, was also a, an attack on the decentralization of power. Through that mix of motives, we can be certain that this was not simply about idolatry. The government pursued policies which would benefit them, and icon-breaking was just one part of that. As we discussed in the siege episode, the Byzantines did all the practical things that we would do to try and win a war. Regaining divine favour was of course the ultimate priority, but there was plenty else being reformed at the same time. Similarly, opposition to the iconoclasts was not just about icons. An imperial edict on how correct worship should be performed in church was an attack on the authority of the clergy and on the monasteries. Most of the passionate opposition to iconoclasm comes from this quarter, and it seems that their resistance was not just about emotional attachment to religious images, but also about preventing the government from defining religious truth. The battle over icons naturally drew in those who didn't really care about spiritual art, Men who wanted to rise in the government would happily smash an icon, while the isolated and the exiled would naturally turn to the iconophiles as the opposition party. 
churchmen were often in a conflicted position. Some joined the government in restricting icons, in part out of conviction, but in part to bring their flock back to the official church and away from their local devotion. While some felt passionately that God's power was ever-present and could spring forth from an icon or a relic, or in the form of a holy man, wherever the Lord wanted it to. And they resisted iconoclasm as an attempt by the government to take away God's authority, and by extension, their own right to cultivate a following around a local holy site. As you can see, this was a society-wide issue. And rather than a superstitious argument about something we no longer care about, I hope you can see this was an empire-wide reaction to the trauma of defeat and the feeling of impotence in the face of the caliphate. This soul-searching brought up great emotional outbursts on each side and in many different directions. Finally, why is iconoclasm so important for our story? It's interesting that it's one of the few Byzantine words still in use in modern European languages. The echoes of its arguments have certainly been heard in Europe ever since, but it's more about what this debate does to the Roman character that I think will interest you. This century and more of national browbeating will change the Roman sense of self. The Romans had always been known for their universalizing mission. The empire could incorporate anyone who would follow its laws and respect its institutions. Even the conversion to Christianity had dovetailed with this desire. The strenuous efforts of emperors to find a compromise to the Monophysite debate shows this inclusive concern. Iconoclasm will see the Byzantines turn inward and seek answers when they emerge in the mid-800s with icons at the heart of a definition of orthodoxy, they will have finally cut themselves off from their Christian neighbours. Those still in the caliphate won't have wrestled with the problem in the same way and will no longer fully recognise the emperor's faith as their own. Similarly, while icons were welcome in the West, they were not venerated there in the same way, and so their firm inclusion in the faith was at odds with papal policy. More than that, though, the Byzantines will have begun to see themselves no longer as the Romans of old, but the new Israel, as David Gyllenhaal argued, God's chosen people who must purify themselves in order to survive the never-ending threats surrounding them. That ideology marks a significant change from the Romans we've dealt with in our story so far, even if elements of it have been growing for some time. Iconoclasm, then, is a very important step on our journey from Rome to Byzantium. I'll do my best to guide you through it. Three more things before we go. Uh, for those who want to be rigorously accurate, the Byzantines actually referred to this struggle as iconomachy, the struggle about images, the term iconoclasm is used by historians, and I will not attempt to be clever and deviate from it. Uh, in part, this is because the term iconoclast, icon breaker, is not a term which the icon breakers would ever have used to identify themselves. It was a slur thrown at them by the iconophiles. 
The other is that uh, if you head over to thehistoryofbyzantium.com, at the very top of the page, you can find a link to all the books I've recommended so far that are on audible.com. So if you're feeling an itch for an audiobook, uh, head over there and you can find the link to the special offer that Audible have on the right-hand menu. It's uh, also, once again, time for me to say thank you to Music Alley for the tune which plays us in and out. This track is by Rob Vandenberg, and there is plenty of good royalty-free music at musicalley.com. Next time, we will get into Leo's reign and talk about what he did, and probably didn't do, after the siege. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.